So I'm just trying to sense into the room to see if it feels any different. Where now that you are likely in a little bit different mind state than you were maybe this morning or yesterday morning or five days ago, I don't know, I'm just trying to, you know, sort of sense into that. I know for me, uh, after, particularly after a longer retreat, when I break silence, there's a lot more activity in the mind than, than before I broke silence. So you might be noticing that. There is certainly a shift happening, is there not? And we, you know, there's this appearance, it appears, that the retreat is coming to an end. And I use this word appearance because, you know, it's really a conventional way of speaking when we talk about the retreat coming to an end. Yes, this, this form, the formation that has come together, this particular formation of this configuration of people, this configuration of teachers and managers and cooks and the weather and, you know, time of the year and where you're at in your particular path and experience. And then all these different conditions have come together in this way. And those conditions are breaking up. They're changing. Most of you, I think all of you, probably are going to leave here, uh, leave this, this uh, land on Sunday. So there is a sense of breaking up, breaking up of conditions, and yet, you know, on a more ultimate level, nothing is really ending. Nothing ends, you know? I mean, if there's an ending, there's a beginning. If there's a beginning, there's an ending. It's sort of, it, they, they go together. You can't have one without the other. So as much as we say this is ending, we're also saying it's beginning. And you may feel that. You may really feel that in your own experience already, that something's really beginning, beginning afresh, beginning new, as this particular set of conditions starts, start to shift and change and fall apart. It's so interesting when we begin to reflect on life, this movement of life, this flow of life, as conditions arising and falling, appearing, and disappearing. And if we can, it's one of the insights, it's one of the ways that we are impacted often on retreat, where we start to see that the way we view experience, the way we view our own mind, our body, ourselves, others, it's not as fixed, it's not as static as it was. There's much more fluidity, more flow, Things are, are, are moving, breaking up, and then coming together again in new formations, again and again and again. And when we come to an end of a retreat, people have been here for two months, some people have been here for one month. You know, it, we, we get into a certain rhythm, a certain uh, way of being, a certain uh, relaxation with the form, and then it changes. Sometimes it changes abruptly, like when you get into your cars, you know, uh, get onto Sir Francis Drake. You know, I was just going today when I was uh, going home, I don't live too far away from here, 
I just had there was just as I came out on Sir Francis Drake, there was one car going really fast. You know, must have been going about seventy miles an hour or something. And then I pulled down and, and the, over by Woodacre, another road, and there was this motorcycle coming really fast going the other way. And then I looked up at the sky, and there was this airplane with all the, you know, the plume, the the, the fumes in the sky, and it's like wow, you know, it's all things are moving quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, it's interesting how it impacts us in a different way when we're used to a different rhythm, a different flow, certain different conditions. But, I re- but ultimately, and something I reflect on sometimes when we talk about changing conditions, ultimately there are only really six experiences that ever happen. And I remember the first time I heard that. I'll tell you what they are in a minute if you don't know. But I remember the first time I was on a retreat with Joseph Goldstein, and he said that. He said, you know, there are only six experiences that ever happen, so you only have to keep track of six experiences in this huge complexity. And he says there's seeing, there's tasting, there's hearing, there's smelling, there's the feel on the body, sensation, and then our thoughts about it. Six experience, thought, activity, mental activity, through pictures or thoughts or whatever. And he said that, and I, you know, I was stunned. It couldn't be, it just can't be, you know, that there's only six experiences. And I remember after the Dharma talk, he, there, it was down in Yucca Valley in the desert, and there's a door where the teachers go out, right out, out the side, which is different where the yogis go out. And I ran out, and I went around, and I waited for him at the door, and I said, Joseph, did you really say that? There were only six experiences? And it was just, it, it was so hard for, you know, in this complexity of my mind to actually first let that in. And then we can, you know, as we sort of sense that and get that, you know, the world takes on a little bit of a different coloration. It's not so solid, it's not so fixed, the way that our minds make it all. The mind, the mind perpetuates these stories, right? The story of me, the story of you, the story of my situation and the world, and it all becomes so believable. That's what happens when we break silence, if we've been in, in silence for a while. You know, it's like the, the personality, the sense of me comes back, right? This me that may not have been so much in the forefront for some of us, many of us. And then we, we, ha- we open our mouths, which means that there's somebody we have to open our mouths to, which means there's another person. So it's not just me alone with me in my own world. Now there's another person, and I'm relating to that person, and there's their whole world and all that they're bringing, and then there's this interaction, and then the complexity starts to get even bigger, and I'm kind of losing track a little bit of what's going on. You know, as soon as, as, soon as the relational piece starts coming in, it gets much more complicated. This, maybe you've heard this um, from uh, the story about Suzuki Roshi, one of the great Zen masters who when one of his students just casually said to him, what do you think of all these crazy Zen students? And Suzuki Roshi said, I think you're all deeply enlightened. 
until you open your mouths. <laughs> and I, I really like that because that's actually my own experience of myself a lot of the time, you know. I think that I am deeply enlightened <laughs> until I actually have to start talking. <laughs> talking means if I'm not talking to myself, it means I'm talking to somebody else. So not only is there my personality, this conditions of past influences and impacts and all that's happened to me in my life, now there's somebody there who also has that same conditioning, their own conditioning of, of a current of experience through their life that comes into the present moment. And then if you get three people or four people, you know, it keeps increasing the complexity. There's a lot to track. A lot of six experiences there, right? <laughs> it's really more, I think, really the complexity comes from what we do with it in our minds. It's what we, it's how we think about it. It's the stories that we perpetuate about what's happening. And certainly that's something we would have seen more clearly over these weeks, just how the mind is so incessant in, in commenting and, and building up meaning and, and story about what's happening now. And it's not that that's bad. It's not that there's anything wrong. It's just what happens. It's what, what happens because we have a mind, we have a body, we are incarnated. And this is, this is how it is for us humans here. But what's so wonderful about this practice is that with our mindful awareness, with our attention, we can actually see it for what it is. It's really possible for there to be some space in the mind, we call it the space, where, where we're not so identified, we're not so caught up in making everything our mind says reality. A way that we overlay what's happening in the immediacy with this story about what I think is true. And, you know, we've all heard this and, you know, we, we understand it to a certain degree, but it's so vital for us to continue to really look into this because it's our, the way that we project our stories onto other people our, uh, our judgments and our views and our opinions. And um, it can be really hurtful. It can be harmful at times. It can be, and of course it's also, there's a, there's a beautiful beauty in the connection there, but, but when we don't see things very clearly, it can be so, so hurtful, so separating, so isolating. When we really take these stories to be true, not only the stories about others, but the story about ourself. And I wonder here in this room how many stories have arisen today about yourself. You know, when you're breaking silence and starting to interact, thinking that maybe you, you know, your per, you know the, the, the personality has come back. Oh, no. You know, <laughs> the personality has come back. I thought I left it behind. You know, I thought I got rid of that, right? 
But, you know, I remember for, for myself that at the end of retreats, I was, I really, really was scared. A lot of times in the early, in the, I did a lot of long practice in the beginning years for six, eight, ten years of my practice. And I really didn't like breaking silence because I didn't want my personality to come back. I was afraid of my personality. It's like I was really afraid, and I, and I think it's because I believe that the, my personality is what held the suffering, what carried the elements of the suffering. And that if somehow I could keep my personality away, <laughs> you know, like sometimes it feels like we can with the concentration, and when through the insight, when we're seeing things very clearly, that personality breaks up and it doesn't feel so solid and it doesn't seem like it has so much impact because we can, you know, see sometimes the thoughts coming and going and the emotions kind of coming that they have a beginning and a middle and an end and we may not take it all so seriously. But knowing that when things become more complex and things are happening more in a speedily fashion, that then the personality may not be seen so clearly, and then, then my belief was that it carries the suffering. And I was just going to go right back into suffering. And so there was this way, I just, I, I didn't want to really face that. And I can even remember times of, of at the end of retreat where there would, even though the, the the more of my personality was starting to arise again, you know, the character, it's the personality is kind of the character. You know, who, we all have this kind of unique flavor of ourselves. You know, everybody here is different, has a different expression, which is kind of the, what I'm calling the personality, or the character, that flavor of the character. I remember for myself when that started to come through again, there was a way I sort of still raised, rose above it somehow, like I'm just not really going to pay attention. You know, I'm going to stay, um, I'm going to distract myself somehow, or I'm going to pretend, or not pretend, I'm just going to say, oh, let it go, let it go, let it go. doesn't matter. You know, it's just empty, empty, pers em empty conditions, just appearing and disappearing. It's not really me. <laughs> but there was a way that I, I could feel that it was like I didn't really want to face myself. I didn't really want to feel my humanness. I didn't want to feel my humanity. I didn't want to really have a sense that I was still a person who had things that I needed to work on and things I needed to deal with. And I, then I wasn't skillful at times. There were ways I was unskillful in my speech, or I would be forgetful, or I would do things that maybe were hurtful. And I didn't want to know any of that. It's so interesting, you know. So there's a way I could remember sort of this way that I just sort of Keep it, pretend it's not really happening, you know. Just kind of keep it, keep it out of my consciousness somehow. You know, it's a way that, way I understand denial as sort of denying some of the conditions, so denying some of the aspects of myself. And it's a process, it's a part of the journey of, of, of allowing this um, humanness, how, allowing more and more of who we really are to come forth without being afraid of that, without having to kind of manipulate those conditions. Well, it's okay if I'm like this, but it's not, not okay if I'm like that. You know, 
And there's some, you know, some, some value in actually determining what's skillful and what's not skillful, of course. But when, in my own experience, starting to go into denial about that, so I didn't even want to know it or face it, it's a different thing. I just want to be happy. I just want to be connecting. I just want to be loving and kind. I want to be, you know, someone who people will really like. You know, but then what about when I'm grumpy and when I really need to be alone and I'm really contracted and I'm just overwhelmed and I'm confused and feeling insecure and feeling fearful and lonely and isolated and what about all that? You know. And so more and more I could see in my own practice, you know, this embracing, embracing more and more of myself, the conditions. When I say myself, I mean the conditions that are arising here that I take to be me, this person here that I am. And to allow that, this sense of being more and more comfortable, I think that's what it is too, is being more comfortable with what's here with what's arising. And also knowing that these conditions of my mind and my body and my emotions, my feelings, they have a beginning and a middle and end. They're not going to be here always. And that we start to break up that view. I think when I'm afraid of coming out, you know, really if, when I'm afraid of really being myself, it's when I'm not seeing clearly that I am a more of a dynamic being, I'm a changing being, I have many expressions of my personality, I have many aspects of, of how I express myself. But when I think of myself more as a solid or fixed view of myself, that this is me and I'm like that, then I can get really frightened because I might be like that. So I think, I think that view is something that actually perpetuates the fear. It's a mis, misperception of who I am, of who I'm taking myself to be. And rather than seeing that truly, and maybe you've seen this, truly who I am is very dynamic, very alive. In fact, I'm not sure that anything ever happens again. <laughs> You know, there's this whole idea of repetition. Again, what is actually repeated? Do conditions ever really come together in exactly the same way? I mean, I don't, I don't think that. I don't think it's really possible. I think that dynamic means that there is something that is unique, that is alive, that is vital, that is maybe never going to appear in this way again. And that is one of the beautiful things about our mindfulness to the immediate present is that this, is, this moment is beautiful and precious in just the way it is. And it may never form this way again. And so in a way, I don't want to miss it. You know, I don't want to miss it. I'm remembering... Um, I don't know if I've, I've told this story before, but I'm remembering one time on an intensive three-month retreat at IMS in the winter. They're always in September, October, November, 
ending in December. So there's a lot of snow. And I remember this one time, the second month or whatever, upstairs at night doing my walking meditation in the, in the corridor, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. You know, after you know, getting up at 3.30 in the morning, it's about 9 o'clock at night, you know, still sitting and walking and sitting and walking. And there was a light outside uh, the back door, back door up on the second floor where you walk down the fire escape. And it was snowing, but it was snowing these big, beautiful snowflakes. And I remember as I would walk over to the door, and the light was shining on the window and the glass, and all the snowflakes were hitting up against the glass. And I went and looked, and I saw that every snowflake was a different configuration. That every snowflake actually was a different form. And I looked at that, I was just, I, I, again, you know, I mean, if some people say that, but to actually have a direct experience of that kind of, dare I say, magic in some way in the universe, that the uni- what the universe is actually capable of in, our, in this creation of creating so many different possible configurations, constellations, and then they would hit, the snowflakes would hit the glass, it was warm inside, so they'd melt, and then another one would hit and would melt. And you know, I just stood there for about 10 minutes, you know, in this deep, you know, my mind very concentrated, and just seeing these beautiful snowflakes and all these different beautiful designs. And I think it's the same with us. I think we're like that. I think we're like these snowflakes, you know, appearing and disappearing constantly in all these different formations, all these different expressions. And then we come together with another person, and then they're also in all these different constellations, different configurations, and then those come together and form a whole new dynamism that can't be any other way except between these two people at that time, those conditions. And I may never appear that way again with anybody else as I am with that person in that moment. And maybe you've had those experiences where you actually come together with someone and something comes through you that you may not even even have experienced in yourself before. Something very new, something very beautiful that comes through just because you're in contact with that person. It doesn't happen. You know in your heart, you know in your mind that it doesn't happen with anybody else but that person. And in some ways you share something very personal, very intimate, very beautiful together, and it's just that one. And then maybe with somebody else, it's another kind of beauty. It's another kind of dynamism. And then maybe with another, it's another kind of dynamism, but it's not actually so beautiful. You know, it's actually pretty difficult and, you know, not one that you want to have to revisit again, you know. But yet all of that, and when we start to sense that actual, that there's nothing fixed about it, it doesn't actually have a, a core to it that's, that's static, it actually, for me, it also gives me more of a sense of hope that if there is something difficult with a person, that that also can change. That isn't fixed either. 
that perhaps that through the bringing something um, wise and compassionate and kind and some uh, understanding to the situation, that maybe there's a way to actually change that difficulty so that it turns into something more beautiful. Nothing, nothing's fixed in this way. And so perhaps this is one of the ways that our insights go deep. These the insights into what's called these three marks of existence, this anicca, the impermanent nature, the anatta, the selfless or impersonal nature, or the dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature, because it's unsatisfactory because we can't hold it. We can't possess anything. We can't say, it's mine. You know, again, another revelation of that, that dynamism, that this coming, this coming together and breaking up, coming together and breaking up. So, so that the insight into these three uh, marks of existence, these three characteristics of existence, that's the way things are. And it goes deep. It really, it's not just for meditation, you know, it's not just for when you're sitting on the pillow. But when we, when we go out into our lives, when we start to go into relational practice, when we're starting to interact, these insights have a, have a power. And for me, it really does give me that sense of workability, that everything's workable something that I think could never, ever be different or never, never change, particularly in a relationship. It's when we start to open our hearts in this way, we wake up in this way, so many, there's so much more possibility. And I think Gil was really talking about that a bit last night too, when he was talking about not only seeing things as they are, you know, which is our core practice here, but also seeing things as they could be, you know, expanding out into our life, really exploring the possibility, the possibilities that are here for us. You know, it's so hopeful. I mean, as I speak about it, I really feel this sense of hopefulness. I think only when things are seen in, in a wrong view, in a confused view, um, that, that things can seem so hopeless. Um, you know, this sense, oh, I'm always going to be like this. How many times have I said that to myself? You know, I'm always, I'm so, you know, I'm so hopeless, I'm always going to be like this. You know, I'm so unworthy of, of, of love. I'm always going to be, it's always going to be like this. You know, the things in my life are just going to keep repeating themselves. You know, but then seeing it, it's just, it's just wrong view. You know, there's no truth to it. There's no reality to it from, from a perception of seeing things as they are, seeing things clearly. There's so much possible so much possible for us. I mean, there's so much possible for us that this is why the Buddha taught for 45 years. So much possible for us that we can wake up, fully wake up, 
we can become a Buddha. That's what's possible for us. So, so when we, we start to see through, we start to see through some of these fixations, so the way the mind gets fixated, that opens up the possibility. And this is what brings forth our aspirations. Because we see what's possible and then we aspire to that. The heart awakens, the heart longs for what it knows is possible. We know, it's like there's, there's, a, there's a core within us that knows what's possible because, in a way, we are actually already that. Right? We're already of that nature. We're already of that same substance, of that dynamism. We are already that. So that which knows, knows what's possible. That which we already are is what knows what's possible for us. It's not, we're not that cut off. You know? I mean, I, I think that, that we all, all beings really know that we can live more fully than we do. That there is more possibility, there is more capacity. We just get lost. We get lost along the way. We find all kinds of strange ways of manifesting that possibility. So we do get attached. We do get attached to these states. We do get attached to the wonderful things that have happened to us here. We get attached to our insights and, you know, the the beautiful experiences, the expanded experiences that we've had. And so through that attachment, we start to, as the retreat starts to come to an end, if we're getting it, if we are attached, we'll feel ourselves contract. We'll feel the tightness. We'll feel ourselves starting that to, 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 in the holding on, we start to actually feel smaller in some way. Like we, like the self, the self kind of comes, comes back in a certain configuration, uh, uh, constellates as one who's holding on, and we actually feel that as a tightness or compression or a, a contraction. So, so we encourage you, you know, not to hold on. Of course, saying that may not be so useful. <laughs> you know, hopefully it comes through a little bit more of insight or wisdom why that is true. Because that, that holding on is a kind of suffering. And it brings about a certain suffering. That's one thing that we find because we think that if we don't hold on, that something else will happen, you know, that will go back, perhaps. Maybe we'll go back to that old personality or those old conditions, you know. That kind of fear again, the fear of who I will become if I let go. Back to the old personality or the old conditions. Another thing that happens is that we actually can get maybe more exuberant Rather than the contraction, we actually feel so expanded and so light and so happy and open that we can kind of, we can get attached to that too, but not actually think that it's attachment. And I've seen that in myself. For myself, after retreats, 
particularly in the early years, I would feel so good, you know, I'd feel, my heart would be so open and I'd be so happy and sometimes I remember maybe my second 10-day retreat, I felt like my head was blown apart and, you know, it was like, great, you know, this is what I've always wanted. And <laughs> again, you know, sort of, you know, blowing apart that way that I thought about myself. And, and then just this, you know, ecstatic release of all this joy. But again, you know, now that I reflect back on it, I can see it's a kind of, we call it over-exuberance. Right, which is actually the near enemy to joy, to mudita, is the over-exuberance because there's a, there's a lot of self in there. It's the self that loves that state, the self that loves to be that happy and that open and that loving and connected, you know. And then we can just want to get higher and higher and higher, you know, go out even more. And it's, in some ways, it's sort of like the let's party attitude, you know. Okay, you know, let's go out there and just have a great time now. And certainly in the early days, um, there was a lot of that <laughs> the last couple days of retreat because we didn't have much integration. We just sort of, you know, had our last a day of practice and then it was over. And then we were just hanging out together. And uh, sometimes, you know, these three-month retreats at IMS, uh, I remember early in the 80s, we had uh, about four days where we stayed in the building. And Insight Meditation Society is one building, and everything's happening in this one building. You don't, don't really even have to go outside. And so the retreat, three-month retreat was over, and then we had four days of party. Four days of party, and every day there were things scheduled, and at night there were skits and movies, and, you know, we had... The, the meditation hall had a big um, screen, and they project, you know, big, this at 8 o'clock there'll be a movie, and then this other night everybody put on a skit and play, and then one night we had a masquerade party, you know, and people would make their costumes all day, and, you know, then we'd go and we'd have our, our party. And I remember this, I think I was so out of it that, <laughs> that I was really, really wanted to have a great costume. <laughs> so, so I went down in the furnace room and I, I found all this white kind of um, padding that they would put, I don't think, it wasn't asbestos, but <laughs> this is the kind of stuff they would put into the walls so that it would keep the heat in. And I thought, oh, this is great because I felt like a cotton ball. <laughs> so I was so kind of, <laughs> so kind of floaty and, you know, I'd all just make myself into a cotton ball. <laughs> and I put all this stuff on me, you know. And all around me, and I was just this kind of white ball, and I, <laughs> I couldn't really see much, you know. <laughs> People really couldn't see me, and it really had this double effect because nobody would really know who I was, but yet I was still at the party, and um, <laughs> I could be, kind of be invisible. <laughs> and the problem is that it was so hot. <laughs> I was just kind of suffocating <laughs> in, the, 
in this in this you know co this cotton ball of this paddock. <laughs> and I was just so confused. <laughs> So I wasn't really sure, you know, this is after three months of, you know, doing intensive practice without any integration at all. <laughs> so we've, we, we've learned a lot. <laughs> I think Gil was saying this morning, you know, we've had some time now to, you know, kind of really calibrate how we want to bring you out. But those were crazy days, you know. <laughs> So, you know, so we can get really excited, you know, there's all this energy. We have all this energy from our practice. And the, how, what, what, what the energy is useful for is turning it back for insight, right? That's why we build up the energy in our meditation, so we can turn it back and go deeper and do, see more and more the way things are. But when you're kind of... <laughs> thrown into these situations and there aren't, you know, isn't much containment or structure, all that energy just gets discharged, you know. I've just seen it so many times after retreat, how people can just discharge that energy and not even really be so aware that that's what's happening because it can feel really good, you know, just this energy, it's, it's wonderful to feel so alive and so awake and, you know, so happy and so, so connected in so many ways, but we have to be somewhat careful. We have to be somewhat protective of this energy and how, what we actually do with it and how it gets released. Because it can, it can go out in many different ways. And so there are ways that we do need to be mindful, we need to be watchful, we need to continue our practice of following that which is skillful and uh, letting go of that which is not skillful. This is so important, you know, in every step of the way. I really think in so many ways, this is the kind of the pith practice. You know, the mindfulness is the support, is the tool for this investigation into every moment, what I'm saying, what I'm doing, what I'm, how, what I'm, how I'm acting, is this skillful? Is this unskillful? Is this going to lead? Is this speech? Is this speech or this action going to lead to more harmony? Is it going to lead to more kindness? Is it going to lead to more love? Or is this action, this speech, this action going to lead to more uh, conflict, more division, more isolation, more pain, more harm? And every moment, every moment we have the opportunity to ask that, to look at that, to notice that. Which way is my mind inclining? We see it first. We see it first through intention, even before the, the, the words come out of the mouth, even before the action is intention. A intention, action, result. Intention, action, consequence of our action. And as we start to slow things down and we pay more attention, we actually can start to see things more at the level of intention. Just that impulse in the mind, the, when, the, when the circuits start to fire in the mind, before the words take form, before the action takes form.
And it takes a pretty fine attention. And we're not always very successful. We're not. We're going to make mistakes. We are going to do things that are hurtful or unskillful or we wish we hadn't done or you know, that's the way it is. I was telling somebody today that you know, we, we have this, actually we have a fifth noble truth, but whoever's teaching may, is, can teach a different fifth noble truth. It's sort of like we can slot something in there. And so this morning I was slotting in um, the fifth noble truth is that the truth that we are going to get caught. It's going to happen. We are going to get caught. That's the noble truth. Something's going to catch us. Something's going to hook us. Something's going to trigger us. And I remember, again, in my early years when the teachers would talk about that, and I would just say, no, 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 I won't get caught. It's not going to happen to me. I just didn't want that to happen. There was so much fear around that. Of course, the fear was I was already caught, right? (laughs) But I didn't see it at the time. (laughs) So that's what's going to happen. So our practice really is in how do we work with it? We have so many practices, so many tools, so many resources. Our job is to apply them, is actually to apply the wisdom of our insights. That's our practice. That's what we do. It's not that we can prevent certain conditions from arising, which is what we'd like to do and what we try to do. But really, our practice is more of the application of the skillful means when things arise, when conditions arise. This is what it means to bring wisdom to our speech, to our actions, to our thoughts. This is what it means to bring compassion to our speech, to our actions, to our thoughts. It's kind of, again, after, almost after the fact. You know, I think we've been talking about that a little bit. Like we, The mindfulness is almost like just a little bit after the thing happens. If something happens and then we know it. It's the same thing sort of with the application of our understanding. It's sort of we, something happens, we know it, and then we apply the wisdom of our insights. I mean, it happens very fast, obviously. But we can slow it down, and we have more and more understanding that we bring as we walk along the path, as we continue. So... This one, in this one discourse from the Buddha, he says, there are five courses of speech that others may use when they address you. He says, their speech may be timely or untimely. Their speech may be true or untrue. They may be gentle. The words may be gentle or harsh. Their speech may be connected with good or connected with harm or spoken with a mind of loving-kindness, or spoken with inner hate. This is what's going to happen. It's going to be one of those courses of speech. So he says, and this is from the simile of the saw in the Majjhima Nikaya, he says, Herein 
monks, you should train thus. Our minds will remain unaffected and we shall utter no unskillful words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness without inner hate. We shall abide pervading that person with a mind imbued with loving kindness. And starting with that person, we shall abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. This is how you should train, monks. This is how you should train. And I love, I just want to point out this translation, the mind imbued with loving kindness, the mind imbued with metta. It doesn't mean that we're saying the metta phrases and we're sending the metta. It means a mind imbued with loving kindness. It means the attitude that we bring, the attitude of kindness, the attitude of care the attitude of concern. This is what we are encouraged to train, train our minds so that our minds are imbued, are filled with care. Abundant, exalted, immeasurable, this boundless, this boundless mind, without hostility and without ill will. That is how you should train, monks. It really is simple in the end, our practice. It really comes down to being so simple, paying attention and seeing what our mind is filled with. Paying attention, what is my mind filled with right now? Is it inclining towards that which is going to bring more goodness, harmony, benefit? Or is it inclining towards that which is going to bring more division and conflict? Separation. So I think I might end there because we had a lot of words today. And um, it's 8.30. So let's just sit for a moment.
Thank you. And so we really like to encourage you to please use these next hours in the silence to protect this beautiful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.